Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. So that was Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through to 21. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, down to business. Uh, Why would we pick this passage to discuss our common and our local mission to children and young people? After all, there are probably uh, better passages to speak about the experiences, the value of childhood and youth. And here are some of those more obvious choices, perhaps. Here we go. Uh, We could have talked about any one of these. They seem like the more obvious specialist passages for a specialist subject like children's and youth ministry, and I'm sure all of them have good potential. It really is the case that uh, children and youth ministry is a specialist subject. Uh, They're specialist subjects because of the experiences of the development of a person in the body and the cultural and social contexts in which children and youth live. And so therefore it as a discipline, does require the tools of the medical sciences, of psychology, of 
sociology, as well as the resources of our best storytellers and artists and adventurers. Absolutely. So I encourage you into this field of youth ministry, of children's ministry, maybe you call it family's ministry, uh, as a specialist even, do that. You know, I, I really wish that I could go back and change some of my ministry career choices, if you can call it a career, so that now I was more free to do more of this kind of work. So do consider it. But I come to speak to you today not as a specialist but as a generalist to encourage all Christian leaders to be the generalists who take that role seriously. It's very, very easy to be the generalist, let's say a a vicar or an associate minister in a congregation, very easy to have that role and just overlook the fact of the presence of children and young people in God's church. It's easy to just overlook that the church is made up of different ages, which include childhood and adolescence. And there's not really very much from our culture, from the age, that would encourage us to remember, encourage us to admit even that adults and children inhabit the same space. They live in the same sphere. Adulthood becomes the assumption of ministry if you don't think about it, or rather whatever age we are at the time becomes the assumption that we minister from. But Romans 12 pushes us in a, in a different direction. A fair number of times in this passage, Paul tells us who he is speaking to and who he is speaking about. And at some points it's very obvious. So verse 3, if you're following along, of course you are, it's Ridley. Verse 3 says, For by the grace given me I say to every one of you, So it's obvious who Paul is speaking to. We know he means everyone. Verse 18 is fairly obvious as well that everyone should be thinking about everyone else because as far as it depends on you, you should do what makes for peace. But do we have everyone in mind? Or do we have to learn that verses 4 and 5, Paul really does imagine that everyone has a gift and that they can and they must contribute to the church. And the church really does require the contribution, the gifts of every single one of its members. Do we have to learn that the one another of verse 10 doesn't exclude anyone? And so therefore that devotion and honour will be reciprocal between ages. Do we have to learn that verse 16's one another means everyone to everyone? And so will mean that ageism in either direction is not a tolerable way of life for us. Do we have to learn verse 17's direction to be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone, that if we are to apply that, it will require the church to engage in a cultural exchange across ages within itself and all its difficulty. The language here is everyone. Everyone, one another, each other, body and member. So what Paul is really doing here, as he is in all this letter and all of his letters, is to provoke this church to an an absolutely new imagination from the gospel. 
And so he's not writing about children and young people, but directs us towards the everyone that assumes children and young people too. So let's actually hear God speak in these words with the weight of the word everyone felt. Let's become better generalists, leaders of whole churches by considering what it means to lead and to love everyone. Verses 1 to 3. Paul provides uh, a structure to an absolutely new imagination from the gospel to shared everyday life. And the first thing that he's got to say about this framework for Christian life is this, this language of offer, sacrifice, holy, pleasing, worship, this kind of language. And these are, these are cultic terms. The sacrifice on this side of the cross is one's own body and a living, living offering in the body. So if you think that through to concrete actions in the Roman world, well, this, this offering means that actually only the individual can make this offering to God. No one can do it on behalf of someone else. Each person now becomes the offerer and the offering in imitation of Christ. But that isn't how sacrificial worship worked in Rome or in the Greek world or even, even in the Jewish temple. Each person could and they had to provide something to be offered, but the real offering was done by the priests, the priestesses, the the religious elite. But when Paul is using his everyone and one another language here, he says that everyone makes an offering, a universally practised priestly worship in the church. So if we are to be genuine generalists who encourage and enable children and young people to also live this call to discipleship, then we rejoice that one does not need to participate in agricultural or commercial life in order to have something to offer to God. The adult world might helpfully be drawn apart from childhood in some ways, but it doesn't prohibit the worship that God desires. Have you ever seen a small child, um, let's say they're at the, with their family at the park or something like that. And a small child sometimes just turn to the parent who's sitting next to them or holding them and they'll just throw their arms around them and they'll just burst out with, I love you, mummy. You ever seen kids do that, little kids? Sometimes they just come out of nowhere with this expression of love. And, you know, all of us are like that. All of us look for somewhere to give thanks for the abundant and beautiful goodness of life that just falls into our lap, unplanned for, unasked for. And children need to be shown in their families how they direct this joyfulness about life to the God who gives life. And as adults help children direct that thankfulness in practice to God, adults benefit too because it draws us all into this most important formative practice of thankfulness, gratitude, thanksgiving. If transformation is for everyone, then it is too thin a practice for pastors or other adults to determine what the goods of childhood are and just parachute them into the playground by talking about what's right and wrong, naughty and nice. No, children and everyone require family traditions and practices, and that's what this directs us to. 
Verse 2 uh, is, is this really good window into this everyone really meaning everyone dynamic. It's about formation, about transformation. So, of course, whenever, whenever we think of, you know, formation, transformation, these words, we think of teenagers, right? I always hear parents and grandparents say, you know, they get this very grave voice and they say, oh, teenagers are under so much pressure these days. We didn't have any of this gender stuff when I was in high school. <laughs> you know, some, some kind of, you know, lament about the state of things and they, they feel for teenagers. And that's kind of good, right? But Paul is here speaking to all of us. But it is, it is true that teenagers do kind of ride the edge of this cultural wave. They, they live at what's a cultural current, probably better to say. So they feel that. So wouldn't we all benefit from the testimony of teenagers about living in that pressured moment at the edge of the cultural current. But the reason verse 2 is really helpful is because Paul includes a little clue for us. He gives his more mature testimony to the less mature congregation. When he says his good, pleasing and perfect will, that's Paul's own assessment of God's will. So he encourages the congregation to take it on trust from him that doing God's will does turn out to be good, pleasing, the perfect thing to do. So wouldn't teenagers benefit from the testimony of adults who have found through their lives of faith their long obedience in the same direction that following Jesus does truly turn out to be good, to be pleasing, to be the perfect way of life? Young to old, old to young, everyone. So I hope you see this requires the generalist to live up to that calling, everyone. Verse 3, now we are not going to make it to verse 21 with this much depth, don't worry. But verse 3 I think is really what you must exhort your churches towards, up the ages and down the ages. This is what you must model and learn to do for everyone to value everyone everyone to know everyone, everyone to love everyone. And it's still in verse 3 here. Sometimes I'm told by people in my church that they're simply too qualified to have to go through the child safe training that the Anglican Diocese requires. And that is just not a good sign that in my church everyone accepts what it means for everyone to love and serve everyone. But it is a good opportunity to walk them through the sacrifices we all must make to serve one another in love. Sometimes as a leader in church who, who runs the youth program, I get asked to, uh, to get the youth to run an activity at a, at a bigger event the church is hosting, right? Yep. Have you ever done this? <laughs> Does it happen to you? And what they mean is include our young people, right, which is right. You've got to recognise that they want a good thing here. But often they treat children and young people in a very tokenistic way as if they want to affirm the value on children, but they haven't thought through what it means to really include them. Do they want to do this? What do teenagers think about this event we're running? Have they been able to contribute, enabled, encouraged to contribute to the decisions up to this point? If not, what are we doing? Wouldn't it be better to give them the training uh, the opportunity, the resources to do this with us and not simply be tacked on. Verses 3 to 8, obviously 
they direct the church to this kind of beyond inclusion togetherness, not just including for the sake of including, not just including for the sake of including, not just adults like assuring themselves that their church is young or that their church has a future or what they've done is paying off, but everyone really has a gift. Paul, he, he, he really stands against the Roman world in which you have to assert yourself over others. And Paul says that the way you are together is in mutuality, in interdependence. In Rome, boasting is normal and expected. You must boast. Pride is a virtue. Humility is weakness, something to be despised. But not so among you, says the Apostle Paul. Everybody needs everybody. And when we have children and youth in mind, we must assert that the development of skill is not the measure of a person. I did some training uh, over a few Sundays in February this year. One of them was on how to read the Bible in church. You would think it was obvious how to do that. Apparently not. It was done very well this morning, I must say. But one person was very adamant that the Bible should only be read by someone with a, with a clear uh what they really meant was very good diction, right? That's what they meant. You know, you can't just leave it to anyone who wants to do it. It's too important. You've got to get someone who can do it properly. And I was a little uncomfortable. It took me a long time to work out why. And I think it's because we don't really think about spiritual gifts like that, do we? Or maybe we do. But is it right to think about gifts like that? The one with the gift for a particular service in the church is not the one with the most skill, but the one who does so in such a way that draws us most into God's life and what God is doing. So why shouldn't the child whose reading level is a bit average not cause us to pay greater attention to what is said on a Sunday morning as they read from the Scriptures? Why shouldn't the migrant whose English is a bit rough not cause us to lean forward on our seats a little more, listen harder, follow more closely? Why wouldn't it be so? Whoever causes us to be drawn into God's speaking is the one with the gift. And if we make it about skill and aptitude, children and young people will be excluded and the whole church will suffer. So I'm going to finish with a brief comment on uh, verses 9 to 21. It's always the way you move significantly faster as you go. Everyone has to grow. Just cast your eyes over verses 9 to 21. Just think about what it's saying there. Pay attention to it for a moment. It's very easy for adults to stop growing. It's actually, it's natural. It's it's so easy, it's almost determinant. But it is harder for adults to stop growing if they walk with struggling adolescents, and every adolescent struggles. It's just hard going through this incredibly personal experience of puberty. It's hard having this daunting experience of having to look to others, to appear to others as if you are special, but in ways that they can recognise, appreciate and share. That's a fine line. It's difficult to grow up as an adolescent, to be parented by adults who, you know, they don't know what they're doing. Giving it a crack, but crikey. (laughs) 
And they feel that pressure. And young people know they feel that pressure. Young people struggle because they live at the the pressure of that cultural edge that we talked about. And Paul, in, in that list, verses 9 to 21, he is encouraging alternative actions to the norms of Roman culture. Pride is normal. Patriarchal infidelity is normal. Gaining honour at the expense of others is normal, commonplace. Patron control over others is expected. Vengeance is justified. But the point of talking about these virtues and practices is that there's a choice to be made between culturally assumed behaviour and the narrow way of Christ. And this is why this is missionally important. Young people have this opportunity to inform our churches of our missional moment, of our formative task as an ever-growing church within this kind of world. So if you are a Christian leader, and you are, this is the important thing, you don't actually get to choose anymore. Your churches will never accept that someone who went to study at Ridley is not a Christian leader, right? You just are. If you're a Christian leader, then be the generalist who pastors and teaches and serves everyone. Your role is to do what Paul has done here and exhort the whole church to the task of discipleship where nobody gets left behind. Your role is to serve everyone to serve everyone in God's household. And to that end, may the Lord be with you. Let's pray. Our great Father, we are grateful to you that you have drawn us together, that we might share in your goodness and joy, in the privilege and and wonder of salvation. We're grateful that you made us a people who were once not a people, once we had nothing to do with each other, but you've made us a family in Christ. And so we pray, Lord, for determination and creativity to serve everybody, to love everyone with the love that you loved us with. In Jesus' name, amen.